Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime. This is Wise Girl and I am really thrilled to present a guest today that I actually have had to wait on for several months because he's in such demand, he's, you know, which is amazing. Uh, Michael Kimmel, he's one of the world's leading experts on men and masculinities and the SUNY Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at Stony Brook University. Among his many books are Manhood in America, Angry White Men, which I have here and I have read, which is really terrific. Um, Guyland, which is uh, also equally terrific. And I think the latest tome is actually this one, which is not on that biography, Healing from Hate. Right. Which with the rise of the neo-Nazi groups and, and the ways that they can get out and heal from um, these kinds of situations. And he's a tireless advocate, engaging men to support gender equality and lectured all around the world and was recently called the world's most prominent male feminist in the Guardian newspaper from London. So Michael Kimmel, thank you so much for joining us on Wise Girl. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm going uh, to I'm gonna correct one word in that introduction. Oh, no. um, uh, tireless. Uh, <laughs> I feel, feel like it's just it's been exhausting. <laughs> you, but you know, you, the thing is, is that what you're talking about is so entrenched in um, our society and, you know, across the world, uh, not in every society, but in uh, Western society, and, you know, by and large. And I think that it's kind of coming to a head, right? We're sort of meeting our maker at this yeah. point. And, 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 and the planet is suffering consequently. Uh, you know, women are suffering and, and, um, and men are suffering. Men are suffering. I think that's true. Um, you know, I have a particular niche, um, which is there aren't that many people whose major objective is to engage men to support gender equality. So because, and, and because of this particular moment historically, because of the enormous gains that women have made, because of the Me Too moment, because of the efforts to, in many ways, erode or roll back many of the gains that women have made, my, my brief of trying to engage men actually has now become kind of, you know, visible, more visible than it has been in the past. And so that's one of the reasons, I think, why, I, why I'm so tired. Um, because there's a lot of people who really are saying, oh my God, you know, it, it's sort of like, it's sort of like we've had this, this movement for gender equality and people are going, oh my God, we forgot to include the men. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, the men are aware that they haven't been included because they're sitting on the sideline getting increasingly pissed off. Absolutely. I feel like in many ways, what I came away with after reading your books um, and just, you know, as a journalist watching just the goings on and as a woman in the world, you know, who's gone through college and has witnessed the hazing and witnessed the repercussions of all of the things that you've talked about and looked at, is that men were not prepared ahead of time to say, here are some of the things you could do or you might want to need to do or think about when it comes to women or when it comes to immigration, or mm -hmm. when it comes to, they weren't prepared. And so, and I'm not saying that we can walk it back, but I'm saying now is the time, I would say, to say, okay, well then how are we going to educate and how are we going to communicate about these issues? Because as our friend Terry Real says, we're not going back in the bottle, you know, from before. No way. So, yeah, so, so I mean, I take it kind of as my starting point, as my kind of, you know, sort of my point of origin that what we know is we cannot fully empower women and girls without engaging boys and men, period, full stop. So the question is then, how do we engage men? How do men engage? 
how do they want to engage how can we how can we engage how can we in, invite men to engage in this struggle and not think that they are rescuing women or not think that they are you know her heroes or um, but or but because it's the right thing to do and it's also because it's good for men because as you said at your outset you know um, you know patriarchy as a system we know the harm that patriarchy brings to women we know the harm that patriarchy brings to children we know the harm it brings to little boys that pushing them into a box that kind of constraint the coercion the policing but we, what we often forget is just how painful, how, 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 it, how it causes so much harm to men. And I think that that sense of isolation and desolation internally in terms of um, that social pressure to fit in and to conform, it creates that culture of, as you called it, violence. You said that there were three things that were needed to sort of perpetuate this uh, sense um, in Guyland, entitlement, silence, and protection. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about how those work together? Sure, sure. Let's, let, let, me, let me talk about it by example. Um, so here's a case that you're probably very familiar with, the case of Brock Turner at Stanford. Remember the Stanford swimmer? So these two Swedish graduate students are riding their bicycles you know, across campus at four in the morning on a Sunday morning, and they hear some noise by a, by a, a, a dumpster, and they see this guy basically assaulting this woman. She's unconscious. She's on the ground next to a dumpster, and he's raping her. And they see him, and they say, hey, stop. And they chase him across the campus. They tackle him. They hold him down, and, they, uh, and, and, and he's arrested for, for sexual assault. So here's, so, so here's what happens as a result. He is uh, 20 years old, white, upper-class guy, a, a member of the Stanford swimming team. Stanford swimming team is as good as a swimming team gets. So he's a, he's a world-class athlete. I mean, when I say that, you know, so many Olympians are on the Stanford swimming team. So, you know, it's really a, a premier team. And he goes and he's arrested and he goes to trial and he pleads guilty to sexual assault. And the judge says, oh yeah, but I don't want to ruin his life. So I'm only going to sentence him to four months and I'll suspend the first two. This guy was out after one month in jail. His father says, oh, you know, I don't think you should punish a guy forever for, for 20 minutes of action, right? His, uh, friends of his, women and men, say, oh, but he's such a nice guy. He's so, you know, we really know him. We like him. He's not capable of violence. So when I say, so, so here's the three cultures that I talk about that I think sustain this the dramatic gender inequality that produces the rape cultures on our campuses. One, the culture of entitlement. That is, he felt that he was perfectly entitled to do anything he wanted with this woman because he wanted to have sex with her, so therefore he should be able to. And she should be compliant after all. Um, so this kind of entitled contempt for women. Second, notice that as soon as he does this, his friends, I say, oh, no, we're not, we're not going to talk about it. And everybody gathers around him and protects him. The judge protects him. His family protects him. His friends protect him. So there's, those are the three cultures, the culture of entitlement, the culture of silence, and the culture of, of support. 
Um, and you see that again and again in the case of um, it, it, a new film that's about to come out about the Steubenville High School boys who gang raped this girl and then filmed themselves like laughing about it and having such a great time. And the community, and when, and when this girl's family sort of brought, brought charges, it was the girl's parents who got death threats from other parents of football players. Like you're ruining it, you know? That's what I'm talking about. You know, to me, um, if, I were, if, it, it, you know, if I were in a situation where I had heard that my son had been involved in something like that, the last thing I would do is go after the person that he had victimized, right? That's the culture of silence and the culture of support. Right, and it's also, like you say, is power is about um, a relationship, not about a possession, right? So you feel entitled to this, and that's this uh, sort of origin of this aggrieved ent entitlement that you talk about that we sort of started the conversation with, which is that I am expecting to always have as much of the pie as I want, whenever I want it, to the degree right. that I'm full. And if I want more, I can go get it anytime, as opposed to I ate my share, that was mine, and now this is left for you. Right, right. When, but, let me, but let me say something about that. So, so when I talk about aggrieved entitlement in angry white men, what I'm talking about there is a kind of political, is the politicization of those feelings. So like a lot of the guys I interviewed, and as you know, in Angry White Men, I interviewed, you know, men's rights guys and father rights guys. But at the end of the book, I interviewed, you know, um, white nationalists and neo-Nazis. And, and they all told a very similar kind of story. And this is what aggrieved entitlement means to me. These guys said, look, you know, um, I had this idea of what it means to be a man in America. And it means to work hard, and you know, do your job and, and pay your taxes and be a good guy. And if I did that, like my father and my grandfather before me, I will be able to support a family and buy a house by myself. You shouldn't have to work. You should be able to stay home with the children. I, that's my responsibility, I should do that. Well, of course, that world for most middle-class men is gone and their wives have to work and they resent it. And their wives have to work, which makes them feel like less of a man. So when I say aggrieved entitlement, if I make this bargain, I will work hard, I'll pay my tax, I'll be an upstanding citizen. And that entitles me to some things. And now you're telling me, it's, it's sort of like these guys feel like they've been standing in line waiting their turn. And now there are all these other people cutting in front of them in the line. There's women, there's, there's LGBT people, there's immigrants, there's people of color. And, they, and so they're, they're like, wait a minute, these people are cutting in line, that's not fair. So they go to the government and they say to the government, hey, there are people cutting in front of us in line, you've gotta stop them. And the government says, oh, get over it, white boy. And they say, okay, I'm voting you guys out. That's what Trump, that's what Trump capitalized on that feeling that these people have, that the government was not doing what these guys wanted, which is kicking these guys out. Yeah, and I know that you had also talked about in that book, um, the fact that there were so many folks who suffered economically, farmers in rural America, in middle America, that the suicide rate had gone way up. Right. 
people whose lives were just devastated and ripped apart because of the economics that were no longer viable because the actual systemic structure had changed once we became more of a global economy. And so when we're looking at this at a political level, you mentioned um, our current president and the folks who you know voted him in and out and some of the things that have been politicized in terms of aggrieved entitlement, that and you also mentioned, of course, this personal, this very sort of, you know, community oriented um, herd mentality, if you will, around those who have been deemed as the appointed, you know, chosen ones, if you will, in What seems to me to be a real common thread from high to low or across the board, if you will, is that there's a real lack of a sense of meaning and purpose and self of connection and belonging, of some sense of, dare I say it, spiritual life or connection, if you will, at a deeper level that isn't defined by otherness and by some level of subjugation and winning for whatever, at all costs. Well, um, I think if you do masculinity properly, you are very lonely. Um, because the idea that we have held up as the ideal about masculinity is autonomy. To not need anyone else. To, not, to be independent. And uh, I think that's a recipe for a profound loneliness. And masculine, what we ask of men is to give up dependency, vulnerability, connectedness. I think we do have a kind of crisis of connection in our society because of it. I think people do, and, and, and it's particularly a, a masculine phenomenon. Um, and, and I'll say something about fr friendships, which are interesting about that on that score. But I think that, that so, you, so when you talk about a, a, a spiritual crisis, I, I think of this kind of emptiness that goes along with the identity of being a man, being strong, being powerful, never showing weakness, never showing any feelings at all, never crying, never needing anyone, winning at all costs. That kind of robotic stoicism actually is a recipe for profound loneliness. And so where do men compensate for that profound loneliness? In the marketplace, by being successful, by being breadwinners, by working really hard and feeling the thrill of the game and winning. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons why so many of them now feel like that's not happening for them. You know, they, 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 they took over the family store, you know, the Ma and Pa grocery that their fathers and grandfathers had built, and then Walmart moved in. And so they had to close the store. So, um, so that idea it, it, so now they're left with the, with, the, with the feeling of emptiness and loneliness that was compensated for by being breadwinners in the workplace. That's gone. What's left? You know, so where do they find it? I don't know. Ashley Madison. Uh, they find it in, you know, in sex um, or in porn or anywhere you can feel uh, the, 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 or opiates or suicide or self-medication. You know, as you said, as you said earlier, you know, the fastest growing demographic in suicide and completed suicide in the United States is middle aged white men. Now, that's not the highest number, but it's the fastest growing. That says something. 
it, it, it says a lot. And, you know, in addition to being a journalist, I'm a mindfulness meditation teacher and practitioner. And a lot of the things that we talk about um, parallel some of the things that therapists talk about. When Carol Gilligan, for example, was saying that men lose their heart, women lose their voice, and that women are socialized at a young age to be... Um, thinking of themselves as less capable, even if they're more capable and men are as boys, you know, mm -hmm. young age, to think of themselves as more capable, even if they're actually less capable, but that they're forced to be cut off from the full range of human experience, the empathetic emotions, the, the compassionate emotions at a certain age, maybe four, five, six years old, somewhere in there, I'm not even sure, but at a young age, and that they're forced to continue to just sort of man up and, and silence the range of emotions that yep. they're feeling for fear of rejection by their peers. Right, that's exactly right. You talk a lot about that men are sitting here trying to impress other men in terms of um, staying in, you know, staying level. And right. can you talk about the homosexual <coughs> remedies the ways in which we can engage men to engage other men in ways that are reparative as opposed to, uh, you know, demolishing of their humanity. Well, this is really, I mean, so, so there's two parts, one of which uh, for, you know, for, for, um, for my, your audience, one thing that I think is really kind of a surprise, all of my research, when I started doing this research, you know, 25, 30 years ago, I was absolutely convinced that, you know, you ask, you ask guys, why do you do this? Why do you take all these stupid risks? Why do you try to parade around about how big and powerful and strong and awesome you are? And guys would always say, as I would have said, you know, I do it to impress girls because I want to get girls. And that was what I went into my research thinking. And I was completely disabused of that idea quite early on. What the, the policing that goes on among men, starting very early in our lives, is by other men. So that's what I mean by masculinity is homosocial. It is performed and evaluated and judged and policed relentlessly by other men. We don't want to be a ladies' man. We want to be a man's man, a man among men. We want other men to value and credit our masculinity. So women in this, in this construction women end up almost being a kind of currency among men in the conversation among men. You know, I imagine the photograph of me and my partner, you know, here she is right here. She's gorgeous. I'm, and there's a photograph, me with my arm around her. And I am saying to other men, see what I got? See how big and strong and rich and powerful I am? I got her. That is, you serve then your sexiness and your beauty and your, your femininity and all, you serve as a way that I am having a conversation with other men. Now that's not to say that women are inconsequential, but that the prime, that that idea of being policed by other men is really powerful for men. And, you know, it's funny because that whole thing of trophy wife or whatever it is comes into play um, as women being objects, objectified, right. not valued for their own humanity. Right. Because men, as I've become to understand it more and more, uh, they're defining themselves as nots. They're not feminine, mm -hmm. they're not girly. As you write in your book, they're not gay. They're right. not meaning that that's what they would say to each other. Or right, right, right. Absolutely. This is really crucial. The, the I mean, you know, ma masculinity is defined by what you're not. You know, it's, the, it's what's ever left over after you have femininity, <laughs> right? 
It's like, we're not them. We're not gay. We're not women. We're not girls. We're not children. You know, okay, so what's left over? And that really sort of seems to be defined as a quicksand, if you will, right? Like in mindfulness, you know, one of the things we talk about is sense pleasures will never actually be sustainable to your overall depth of well-being because right. you're fleeting and they're changing and things change just like the way that the economy changed and now we have globalization and you know everything changed and so to somehow find a way to derive a sense of worth and a sense of meaning underneath that and beneath that so for men who are still afraid that they're going to be shunned and ostracized by their male cohorts if they venture into the territory of what some of my teachers, like Jack Cornfield, would recommend that all people do, which is to expand their compassion, expand their ability to sure. be kind to other people, to see alternate points of view, to not cling fiercely to any particular ideas about things. How would men then start to do this? Well, let me just let me just say, you know, let me push back a little bit on that, um, because I think that there's a you're you're creating a kind of a dichotomy between what you call the sense pleasures part, by which I mean, you know, I think you mean like the sort of physicality, sensual pleasures, the sensory pleasures, um, and the something that's much deeper and much more profound than that. And I and I take your point. I mean, by and large, I think that's largely true. But here's what I think it leaves out. Um, I think it leaves out those moments that can take you by surprise when you think you are engaging in a sense pleasure, so to speak, and it results in something far deeper and more profound. Some, you know, I'm thinking, for example, for in my case, of those moments when um, I was in political demonstrations, when I was in, in the anti-war movement, when I suddenly wasn't just me marching, but I was part of a whole, whole American youth, young people. I was part of something so much bigger. It was profoundly spiritual. The same thing is true when I was, you know, um, in, in college and, um, and in, in a somewhat altered state of consciousness at a Grateful Dead concert. And I felt it completely at one with the world. That was a profoundly spiritual moment at what was a sense pleasure. And, 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 and to be perfectly frank, so, you know, the best sex one ever has is a, is a place where suddenly the boundaries of the self seem to dissolve. Um, you don't remember where you start and your partner begins and, 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 and there's something where you feel like you're just sort of opened up from, from inside out. That's a profoundly spiritual thing. So, so these are sense pleasures. I don't want to denigrate them no, completely. And I, and I don't They're a doorway. And, and I absolutely agree with you on all of those points and about all of those things. And I would actually say that perhaps I misspoke or I didn't complete the thought to simply say that to assume that the, that the fulfillment of those kinds of things or the new Ferrari or the new, you know, penthouse or whatever, of course. Uh, to assume that once you achieve that, you will get to a state of happiness that you'll stay there. It's not that desire is bad and it's not that joy and enjoyment, like you were describing right. that beautiful sense of oneness or connection or feeling profound and in awe. Those are all amazing. And that is in fact, I think what, uh, um, what we all want to feel, you know, but Those are, and they surprise you. <laughs> right. But it's, and, and that's why life is spontaneous, but that it's the, it's the, it's the clinging that if I don't have this, then mm. I'm going to have to uh, be angry or I, I don't know how to regulate. I don't ah, know how to regulate. It, 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 
And, and in yeah. fact, I, I, in fact I, I would actually go one step further than that. So if you take, if you go into these kinds of sense pleasures, as you call them, with the expectation that it will be profoundly spirit, it, it won't be. You know, I mean, all right, yeah, I'm. I know I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna snort this cocaine with my with my bros, and we're all gonna be completely bonded as brothers, and then you feel empty at the end. You know, like you know, it it, it comes up by surprise. We have to be open to it. Right, the intuition and the spontaneity uh, of life, I think, is what's beautiful. But I also think it's partly what gets cut off with what you're saying when people are in that stoic, automatic, right. um, you know, uh, limited sense. But our right. culture in general reinforces that, that whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Everybody can make it on their own phenomenon. Right. Whether it's through um, our economic system or whether it's through this gendered system. Uh, and can you talk about how the economics and the gender really are, you know, in tandem and, and what sure. we can do there? Well, I think we talked about that earlier, that this idea um, that the you know, what, what, what the economists call homo economicus, the individual rational actor is the center of the universe, um, is, is a recipe for profound disconnection. Um, we are not rational actors alone in the universe. We are deeply embedded in our families and our communities. If we pretend that our economic activity is somehow separate from that connectedness, we lose in both arenas. We lose the sense of, 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 of integration between our individual work acts in the marketplace, let's say, and our, um, and our, and our sense of accountability, our sense of, of connectedness. You wouldn't have, I think, the level of corruption, the kind of you know, vile, contemptuous kind of levels of corruption of the Bernie Madoff, Donald Trump model, if people felt that kind of connectedness to their families. And I mean, I don't know if you watched the movie about, uh, the, about, uh, about the Madoffs um, on HBO with Robert De Niro. I did. Um, it was frustrating, but it was, in, it was revealing also because here was someone that was entirely embedded in his family but he was completely disconnected from that, from his economic work. In fact, he never would tell his family what he was actually doing. Um, and, that's a, and that's a recipe for loss on both fronts. But don't you think a lot of this, and I know you're a sociologist and not like our friend Terry Real is a, is a therapist, but don't you think a lot of that has to do with the deep shame about something that people aren't really, uh, you know, able to talk about they don't feel because they're not supposed to talk about any of these things I, I you know I, I'm, I'm a, I am a sociologist I'm, you know I'm the adult child of psychoanalysts so I have some some little bit, bit of background in it but I will say um, I think much of men's behavior in the public sphere is an effort to cover up some kind of deep wound or shame or humiliation that they experienced at, at, at a younger age. I think growing up male in this culture is trauma because of the way in which we have to constantly navigate violence. The violence that will be used against us or might be used against us or might be threatened to be used against us is something that every boy has to come to terms with. 
I don't know, I've never met a guy who didn't have to come to terms with the possibility of violence as he became a man. Whether it was being shut down, whether it was being threatened, whether it was, you know, being policed, um, the fear of other, you know, women do not have a monopoly on the fear of other men. You know, well, and, and, and that leads into the next point about the Me Too and Time's Up movements around the idea that um, even really well-educated, high-level journalists that I know who are men who have acted inappropriately, even in the what? midst of this, even in the midst of this. And they will say things like, well, gee, I guess I wasn't so evolved after all, or I guess I have a lot to learn. And, and I'm like, yeah. And... Part of it is because I think, and you can tell me more because you study this more, that because they've never been on the receiving end of what it's like to be objectified mm -hmm. in a sexual way, that they just don't see it. And if they haven't participated in it directly, then their silence is something that they just accept as part of the norm as opposed to their being part of the problem. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 because I haven't experienced it from that side, I have a couple of thoughts about the Me Too um, uh, Time's Up moment. Um, and I think what's happening for men is um, the rules are changing in real time. And I think we're kind of betwixt and between. Here, here's what I, what I mean by that. Um, the guys that you're describing um, remind me of myself. I grew up, you know, my father's workplace looked very much like Don Draper's workplace. And by that, I mean, the men had all the offices with the windows on the outside. And the women were gathered in a kind of corral in the center, which was called the secretarial pool. And sexual access to those women was a perk of the job. Of course, it was expected. Don Draper, remember, divorced his first wife, had an affair with one of the secretaries, then married her, and then she divorced him. So this is something that this is what we, I grew up thinking my workplace was going to look like that too. And of course, it doesn't look anything like that. And, but the good news is I have a 19-year-old son, and he doesn't think his workplace is going to look anything like that at all. Nothing at all. So I think there's some good news there. We are watching this change in real time. So the guys that you're describing, um, let, me, let, me, let me give you an analogy. I think this is a Confederate monuments moment. That's what I call it. Two years ago, now I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I grew up in New York, um, and, and I thought that the Confederate monuments to all those fallen generals and everything, I thought, oh, the South, they're so quaint. Isn't that interesting? You know, the old South, gone with the wind, Tara, you know, Scarlett O'Hara. Isn't that cute? Two years ago, I realized, oh, my God, those guys were supporting slavery. It took that long. But now the blinders are off. Now we see these monuments in a completely different way. It took a really long time. The same thing is true, I think, in the Me Too moment. We thought this was normal behavior, Francesca, and now we realize this is, this is not normal. So let me give you one, one example, because I think this is the, the, the variable that we're not looking at carefully in the Me Too moment is age. So, so there was a survey that the, that the Economist put out about, uh, about three months ago, and the survey asked, um, two groups of men, 
18 to 30, and 62 and over. And they asked them about some, what you might call low-level harassment, right? I'm not talking about, you know, giving you a trunk. I'm not talking about groping or grabbing or throwing, you know, raping. I'm talking about the three things that they asked them. Is this okay in the workplace? Calling a woman sweetheart or honey. Saying, you look beautiful today. Or coming up behind them and giving them a neck massage. 80% of the guys under 30 said, of course that's not okay. 75% of the men over 60 said it was fine. Right. We are witnessing a generational shift in real time about how men and women are going to interact in the workplace. But a lot of men I've heard around the water cooler say, I just don't want women around. I, I don't know what to do. I, and so instead of taking responsibility to say what it is that I need to learn to do or how to be, they want to alleviate, quote unquote, right. the okay. problem. Right, right. Well, okay, so there's, there's, two, there's two things that you mentioned, and I think both of them are important. First of all, you hear this from a lot of guys who are saying things like, well, I'm just not going to invite women to meetings and I'm not going to go out to dinner with them and I'm not going to invite them to parties. And in fact, I'm not even going to hire any more of them. I'm going to pull a Mike Pence, right? And my response to that is if you do that, you will be out of business in five years because women are so talented and gender, more gender equal companies are doing so much better and outperforming the market. So the more gender equal, the better, higher levels of profitability, you're going to put yourself out of business. Go right ahead. But here's the other thing. You, you said, and I think I hear this more than any other comment in the workplace from, from, from men. I don't know what to say anymore. I mean, I don't want to offend women. I don't know what to say. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. So here's my response to that. First, um, I think that's good news. When men say to you, I don't, I don't want to offend you. I don't know what to say. I think they're basically saying, I don't want to be a jerk. Okay, that's a good place to start. Let's not be jerks. Great place to start. But here's the second thing. Women have felt uncomfortable in the workplace for millennia. You have felt uncomfortable in the workplace for two months. Sit with it for a few, for a few months. Sit, you know, let's not get rushed to get over this so quickly. You are now feeling some discomfort about what you say, how you present yourself, and now you know how women have felt for 2,000 years. Doesn't feel good, does it? So let's now ally with women to change, and women are changing the rules. Let's realize that that change is good for us too. Yeah, I love that, and, and I think that it's, um, it's what's needed. There is, of course, a lot of backlash. And so many people, uh, especially people who are older, as you say, uh, seem to be the ones who are the first ones to say, and women included, by the way, on this, as I'm sure you've noted, to say, oh, that's not such a big deal, or we had to put up with that, and so whatever. Sure. So, you know, women, um, you know, for, for a long time, in that Don Draper era, women would talk to each other quietly. You would come into the office, a new person, and I would say, oh, there's Don over there. Now he's gonna come up behind you and he's gonna give you a neck massage and he's gonna tell you you look great. He's gonna pat you on the butt. He's harmless, don't worry about it. But if you have to get something out of the utility room, wait till he's out of the office. Women would tell each other these things, right? Well, now women are saying, that put us in a really difficult position. We had to be the ones to stop men from behaving like predators. 
why don't men stop themselves from behaving like predators? Um, and, and so that requires a different conversation. That requires a conversation among men. So let's, let's have that conversation or talk about that conversation because for me, it seems as though, um, again, this gets back into the bros before hoes uh, thing that you've talked about in terms of your, um, you know, your, it, that you talk about in your books, which is more this idea that uh, it's more important that I'm accepted by the guys in the office or seen as successful or whatever than it is um, that I'm treating people fairly. And I think that, you know, a lot of this has to do with the fact that, at least in my experience, men aren't seeing certain people as human beings. Mm. That they are not seeing people of certain ethnicities, race, it could be a height prejudice, it could be an socioeconomic mm -hmm. prejudice, it could be a gender prejudice, it could be anything, but that the idea of the judgment around who's cool and who isn't and who's okay and who isn't, and whoever isn't in the dominant means that I can treat them like crap. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's, we, we learn uh, that masculinity is a hierarchy. And patriarchy is a system of two types of domination. It's the domination of men over women, but it's also the domination of some men by other men. Um, and we often forget that part. We all, you know, I think we often forget that. So, so you know, it, 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 just because men have power over women doesn't mean that all men are, are therefore powerful. Um, most men don't feel powerful at all. We're told we're supposed to feel powerful, and then we don't. And so we're looking for someone to blame. And who's the easiest target for that? You know, women. And that's where I think the men's rights groups come in. Um, you know, I, I'm not happy. Whose fault is that? <laughs> right. And, and, and when you say men's rights, you're not talking about the pro-feminist men's movement. You're talking about the anti-feminist men's movement, the, 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 you know, the, 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 what they call the manosphere on the Internet, the red pill, all of that sort of stuff. We've seen and we've continued to see. And I want to get back to this idea of men needing to educate men about finding ways to treat people with more respect and equality and to find that not offensive to actually like find ways of increasing their own capacity mm -hmm. to engage there without feeling like they're forfeiting masculinity right that they're not going outside the yeah. of of their code right well yeah so so isn't that i mean that's the key right so my job is to say, this is not a sacrifice to men. This is not a loss for men. In fact, the men who become more gender equal in their relationships with their partners, the men who become more gender equal because they're spending more time with their children, very rarely want to go back, very rarely want to exert the sort of traditional stereotypes about masculinity. They actually like it. So my argument is this is not a zero-sum game. If women win, men win too. Um, and, and so isn't it interesting that patriarchy has always thought that this was a zero-sum game. So men win and women lose. But the, uh, the other side is that when women win, so do men. And incidentally, you know, so do children. 
well, you know, Terry Real talks about men don't fear intimacy, they fear subjugation. Mm. And then um, we, we've also, I've also heard it said uh, about race that um, the dominant culture, white dominant culture, uh, fears more than anything that people of color would do to them. Well, what they've been doing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's not what anybody's asking for. Yeah. That asking for equality is not the same as asking for power over. Right. There's a there's a wonderful there's a there's a a, a woman um, who who's a uh, professor and she does this exercise with with students. Um, she asks students if they if they really understand what racial discrimination or are we are we you know are have we arrived at racially rel relatively racial equality? And all these white students say absolutely we're definitely there. And so she then says, okay, here's my question for you: knowing what you know. How many of you would want to change places with people of color? And nobody raises their hand. And she says, well, maybe you didn't understand the question. How many of you would want to change places with people of color? You just told me there's no description. And nobody raises their hand. And so she says, so you do know, don't you? You do know that it's different, don't you? You do know that there's, you know, that, and, and that's how she introduces, because we pretend we men pretend we do not know what is happening to women in our, in our lives. Um, and uh, what's interesting to me is that opens up a possible entry point for men. You listen to the men when they start, the first, first offering, the first iteration of their understanding of women is, well, I definitely support gender equality in the workplace. I have a daughter or, well, but my wife experiences, or my mother told me, it is, you know, my, my girlfriend told me that she'd been assaulted in high school. Men enter the world of gender equality by finally listening to the experiences of women and saying, wow, that's really wrong. And that's what you talk about, too, in this book, yeah. because you talk about people leaving the neo-Nazi movements or the hate groups because yeah. they have kids or a girlfriend that becomes more important. And they're like, why am I raising a child that's going to hate when this child <laughs> did nothing wrong? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's one of the ways that these guys get out. So back to this idea of what can we do? What can men do? I mean, I'm actually in the process of trying to put together a class on patriarchy, co-taught by me and someone like you, if not you, but someone who's able to talk about these things in a way that the good men who say, I don't know what to do, but they say they're wanting to try and help, but they don't know where to start, where do they start? Well, um, so I think there's a, um, I think that, that there's, two, there's two conversations that we need to have and one conversation that we don't <laughs> or, or maybe, maybe things that we have to say. So, um, you know, I, I think in this moment, um, we first of all, you know, as Americans, we know we must listen to Oprah. And Oprah said at the Golden Globes that, you know, men, it's time to shut up and listen. Listen to what women are saying. Listen with an open heart, with an open mind. Listen to the experiences that these women, that you know, that you care about, listen to what they've, they've endured. And take it in. It's not blaming you. Just take it in. Just be quiet. 
But that doesn't mean we have to be quiet in another arena. I think the two conversations that we're missing in this entire thing is we keep coming to you and we keep saying to women, tell us what to say, tell us what to do. I think we have to figure this out on our own. I think what we have to do is figure out ways to support one another and we have to figure out ways to support one another so that we can challenge one another. Because this system exists because men are silent. We have constructed a notion of masculinity that's all about bravery and courage and taking a, good, a risk and going for it. And yet when it comes to challenging men that we know are doing things that are wrong, that we know in our hearts are wrong, that we see at a party that are, that are getting a woman too drunk to, to stand up and we know what's going to happen, we don't stand up. Why do we suddenly become so, so scared in the face of other men? We have to learn how to challenge each other. And the way that we do that is by supporting each other so that we have allies, because you can't do it alone. Now, so those are the two conversations I think we need are to support one another and challenge one another. Well, I love that you're, that you're saying that. And I, I, you know, it makes me think of, um, you know, if it's the mother, the girlfriend, the wife, the daughter who makes the man uh, sort of, you know, has the portal there to, to care you know, mm -hmm. this issue, if their personal relationship makes them care, that even if they're some way at home, they may mm -hmm. act differently when they're with their guys on the golf course or in the locker room or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so trying to bridge that gap, I think, is the difficult part because- I completely get it. You know, this is the, this is the conversation, this is the question. You, what you just posed to me is the question I get most asked most often by women on college campuses. They say, you know, my boyfriend, when he's with me, he's so sensitive. He listens, he talks with me. We have a really great, you know, communication. But when he gets with his other guy friends, he makes sexist jokes and laughs at all this homophobic stuff. And so the question that they're asking is, what's up with guys in groups? And, and that is the question about gender policing. That is the question about challenging other men when you, you know, when you know in your heart that you don't, that you're not okay with it. Yeah, that's, um, that's a big one. And um, I would love to say that it, there's a simple solution, but uh, I know that, I know that there is. And that's the, that's the, that's the, the, the direction we have to go is how do you empower men through supporting each other so that they can finally challenge other men? And I just have to say, I also have to just remind us of time because I, I'm, I'm, I have to go cook. <laughs> no, no, I, I was just saying it's, it's, it's almost six o'clock. And so that means uh, that we are almost all done. And yeah. I want to say that, um, you know, the work that you've been doing uh, is really phenomenal and you are teaching about these things over at Stony Brook and will continue to do so. So I also encourage people to find you read these kinds of books. I think <laughs> No, I do. I think that they're a good introduction for folks who don't really know uh, where to start. But I do love the fact that men need to start to just listen to women and then support one another in not staying silent. Right. Great place to end, Francesca. Michael Kimmel, enjoy your dinner cooking. I Thanks. love the fact that you're sharing the household duties. There I am. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank thanks. you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.